This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton. This is Knowledge at Wharton, and you're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, our final 30 of the day. And then we will be back with you on Monday with another edition of our show. We'll tell you more about that coming up a little bit later on. Well, we have seen how many companies are trying to keep up in this data-driven society right now, but many of those companies aren't able to keep up or truly understand what all the data means or how to use it. And that may be very well where quantum computing steps in. It's a relatively new type of computer. It will allow people to keep up when besieged by data. The hope is that by many, we will see a shift in this type of technology in the very near future. William Hurley is the founder and CEO of StrangeWorks, which is a quantum computing software company. He is trying to be at the forefront here in the U.S. of the shift to quantum computers. His fellowship will be in Germany and Japan. Two countries right now seen as emerging leaders in the field. And it's great to have him here in our studio. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I guess let's start with what is it about Germany and Japan that has them seemingly at the forefront of this? So, you know, over the last, call it, you know, 20 years, a lot of research labs have been working on this. However, um, in Japan, you have Professor Nishimori, who's one of the fathers of quantum annealing, which is one type of quantum computer. Okay. Uh, you have N- NTP doing uh, uh, a public quantum computer available to anybody over the Internet. So you have a lot of activity, um, Tokyo Institute, places like that. So that's what makes Japan interesting. Germany is interesting because it's relatively new into the field, but there's been an interesting amount of investments. I attended a conference there last year called the Blue Yard event uh, mm-hmm. put on by a venture fund based in Germany. And it was surprising to see the size of the community that came to Germany versus all of the other conferences. Hmm. This is still a nascent industry. So you're looking at, you know, 75, 100 people at event is kind of a big deal. Right. So uh, for those people that don't know, what are the major differences between what we know as computing right, you know, that we use on our day to day basis and quantum computing? So, so this is hilarious because this is the hardest question for anybody to ask. Bill, <laughs> Bill Gates was quoted as saying, you know, I know a lot of physics and a lot of math. I don't understand quantum computing. And uh, when they asked the CEO of Microsoft, he couldn't really give a, a, a very short, succinct explanation. Right. Um, I have a benefit, which is that I ran across a guy named Chris Ferry who writes children's books about physics. And I bought the books for my kids and sent him a picture and said, I really like this book. And he found out I was doing quantum computing. He said, we should write quantum computing for babies. Right. And uh, it's pretty interesting because it allowed me to break it down. Um, You know, quantum computing, the difference between quantum and classical is in a classical computer, we can get answers by manipulating the data. Right. In a quantum computer, we cannot manipulate the data. In a classical architecture, we can see what the computer is doing. Right. In a quantum architecture, we cannot see what the computer is doing. Right. Hmm. We can only see the results of what it's done. So if you think about, you know, Schrodinger and Schrodinger's cats, right? You know, is the cat alive or dead in the box? Yeah. He did that classical, yeah. very morbid thought experience. <laughs> exactly, right? yes. Uh, you know, if you think about that, that's how a quantum computer works. So all of this stuff is going on, but we don't know what's happening until we take a measurement, right? And at that point, a qubit, which is the component that makes a quantum computer different than a bit, instead of being a one or a zero, it has superposition. It can be a one and a zero or some state in between because it's an electron, it has spin, yeah. uh, we, all the spin stops and we can take a measurement. And at that point, we, we have an answer, which is why in some types of quantum computings, 
you get the answer that's most likely the right answer most of the time, but okay. maybe you run the experiment again. But it's not a 100% certainty that, that you're getting the absolute correct answer. Not today, but it will be. So, you know, there's, there's three basic types of quantum computing for your listeners to kind of keep an eye on. There's annealers, which is D-Wave and companies like that have been doing for 16 years. There's circuit gate models, which work more like a traditional computer works, and IBM and Google both have very big projects in there. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Microsoft doing something completely different than everybody in the field, which is called a topological quantum computer. Uh, the difference being in a normal qubit, it holds a, a one piece of data. In a topological qubit, they could hold multiple data components, which in theory would make the fidelity of the system higher and, and make it more reliable, you know, less need for error correction things of that nature. So we're talking about like a lot of, uh, of new, t uh, new technology, new development, that this is, this is a race to a degree. You know, I just gave a, a keynote at South by Southwest in Austin, and I, I had a slide that was, you know, I thought was going to be controversial that wasn't, where I basically said, this is, you know, just like the, the nuclear arms race or space race, this is, this is a race right now. Um, yeah. Things like artificial intelligence, which we don't really have, we have, you know, really smart machine learning those become more of a reality with, with a quantum computing infrastructure, right? Um, countries are investing billions of dollars to be the first. Uh, Sweden just put a, a billion dollars in to, to try to be the first to build what's called a general purpose quantum computer. Hmm. So that would be a quantum computer that is quantum but works as we traditionally think computers work. Because if you look at some of these large systems, they have to be cooled down so cold, 0.5 millikelvin. MIT has one that's, you know, negative 15 millikelvin. When you think about taking the data from room temperature and then cooling it down, and those, those atomic components, they kind of settle down. Mm. Well, when you start computing on them, heat comes in, and then, of course, decoherence sets in, and, and there's not a computer there. So, you know, IBM's machine runs for about 50 microseconds, right? And then it's not really a machine. So a general-purpose quantum computer would be something that runs traditionally more like a, a standard computer that we think of. And every country in the nation is in a race to try to develop one of these first because it's seen as, a, as, a, as the new advantage. Um, breaking encryption uh, becomes possible, right? Which obviously yeah. a lot of countries are interested in building better encryption, building networks that you that you couldn't hack, right? Which obviously becomes a huge point of emphasis right now with all the various elements we see around hacking and, and breaking and lost data. I, I mean, it's seemingly almost every week we see a new story of somehow some version of this coming out. Yeah, you know, and, and security is a race. You know, one thing I want to make sure everybody I'm always talking to understands is a lot of people tell you quantum computing is going to break Bitcoin and blockchain and encryption, you know, the RSA keys or whatever. That will happen one day. But that's no different than our history in computing of what's happened. Right. So, you know, I'll have a X qubit machine, let's say 200, and I'll break the RSA key. Now you make your key time, you know, your key length four or five times as long or 10 times as long. And now I need a 500 qubit machine. And guess what? It's another four years before I have one of those that works, right? So security is, a, is, is always a, a journey, not a destination. And so that needs to be kept in check because there's a lot of fear and uncertainty doubt around quantum computing. It's going to change computing in the next 10 years more than the entire history of computing yeah. has changed our yeah. world. But it's important to stay on the positive side. Cures for cancer, you know, drug discovery, uh, optimization that makes autonomous vehicles possible, right. AI, all these other things that it'll do that'll be hopefully very positive effects on the world. But we're also talking about a society, especially here in the United States, I think, uh, and maybe other parts of the world where we are so resistant to change that you're talking about taking something that like traditional computing that we've known for now relatively 40 years and we've gotten so comfortable with 
And now you're talking about even though it may not have the immediate impact on society on a day-to-day basis, but you're still talking about making that almost like a big left turn towards the next 40 or 50 years. I think it will be a big turn, but I think it, you know, this has happened before, right? I mean, you yeah. can you can look back at the history of computers and remember when, you know, IBM executives were saying, I don't think there's a need for three or four computers in the entire world, right? right? right. So, I mean, you know, we've been <laughs> through this before. It's nothing to be afraid of. And we've got three or four computers probably in these studios with our with our smartphones right now. Exactly. And, you know, quantum computing is not going to be in the smartphone anytime soon. Yeah. It's not going to make your cat videos on the internet faster, <laughs> uh, but you'll see the results of it as a consumer, right? So things like predictive text on your phone, things like, uh, um, you know, Google searches, right? Google is investing very heavily in this, obviously, uh, because if you take a large database, uh, in theory, we'd only need the square root of the number of entries in the database uh, in order to find the same answer. Faster search is more money for Google, right? So obviously that's one area where you could see it, where it's also going to affect uh, you as a consumer. So uh, your time that you will spend over in Germany, Japan, you'll be doing how long and and really the companies that uh, that you're going to be speaking to will be who? Spend a couple of weeks in each place. In Germany, companies like Mercedes and Volkswagen already have quantum computing projects, so they'll be high on my list. There's several universities that will be very interested in there as well. In Japan, um, you know, a lot of the major telco companies are already working with quantum. You have Professor Nishimori there, who I had the honor of meeting last year. is one of the fathers of quantum computing. Uh, so there's a very big uh, academic community around that as well. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studio is talking with uh, William Hurley, who is the uh, founder and CEO of Strangeworks, about uh, his uh, Eisenhower uh, fellow trip, which will be to Germany and to Japan, uh, about quantum uh, computing. So how will, maybe this is a challenge to say this now, but how will the average citizen here in the U.S., really start to see the impacts of of quantum computing in the future? So, you know, I think you'll see the impacts first in a lot of the services you use, right? Think of quantum computing not as a replacement for a classical computer, but as kind of a coprocessor or a co-architecture. So example, if you take Shor's algorithm, which is how you would in theory break encryption, out of those five steps, only one of them is a quantum step. Now, it's a very hard, very important step. Yeah. But Think of all of the problems that face us as a society that are complex. If you take the traveling salesperson model, if you have a computer that does 10 to the ninth calculations per second, and you want to send somebody to 14 cities and find the most optimized route, it's like a 10 to the 11th problem. It takes that computer about 1,000 seconds to solve that problem. Yeah. But if you go from 14 cities to 22 cities, it takes about 1,600 years. If you go to 28 cities, it takes more time than the known universe. And so there are problems in computing like that that we have. Um, another thing would be modeling a caffeine molecule, right? Um, you know, think about drug discovery and curing diseases. Uh, yeah. Quantum computers will be hugely impactful. Take a caffeine molecule, you know, uh, Bob Suter at IBM gave this great example. Where he said, you know, you have a caffeine molecule and it's, you know, 10 to the 48th, uh, uh, you know, and the size of the all the atoms in the earth or whatever is 10 to the 49th, 10 to the 50th. And you'd need basically like one tenth of the earth size and memory to do this in a classical system. Yeah. In a quantum system, you'd need like 160 qubits, right? And and those and we're growing in that very fast. Last year we started with IBM with seventeen. They ended the year with fifty. Google starting this year with seventy two. I think we'll end at a couple hundred maybe yeah. in the next twelve to sixteen months. So this is something that is emerging. But as the quantum computing community grows larger, as there are more advances, you then start using quantum computers to solve some of the material science problems. Things accelerate much faster than they have in in the past or 
in the history of classical computing. Great meeting you. Enjoy your trip. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, William Hurley, the uh, founder and CEO of StrangeWork, joining us here on our Eisenhower Fellow Special. The role of youth and young adults in our societies is a question that many countries are asking right now. How can they work and learn while they are young, but also prepare them for life after education? How can they also, if they want to be, part of the political process as well? Timoteo Itomi, who is the CEO and founder of Redwire, marketing group based in uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and as well in London. But she has spent a great deal of time working on various projects that involve the youth of Nigeria and how they can learn as well as set their own path for the future. After internship, she wants to expand the summer internship program and discuss the role of young Nigerians in the election process. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. What was the what was really the the the, the gist behind your want to be an Eisenhower fellow? and the change that you really wanted to try and bring to your part of the world? Um, I think, um, first off, I'd say that some of the info that you have is slightly dated. Um, This was my life four years ago, and essentially a lot of things have evolved. Um, I've always been very passionate about young people. Um, I've always been passionate about helping create employment in my country, where there's almost 50% of the population uh, unemployed. Um, and so I participated in President Obama's Mandela Washington Fellowship about four years ago. Right. Um, and then I took that experience back to Lagos, Nigeria and replicated it um, in a program that is sort of like an accelerator here where we take a cohort of about 20 to 30 young people and then we train, train them over a defined period of time. Yeah and enhance their capacity to create jobs so that they contribute directly to reducing unemployment in my country. How much is uh, is the entrepreneurship bug hitting the young adult in Nigeria right now? A tremendous amount of young people in Nigeria are really, really passionate about entrepreneurship. And a great percentage of us are, you know, informally, mainly, um, starting out our own business. I always contrast this with my parents' generation, like my mother's generation, where all of them had to be like doctors or lawyers or... The reverse is the case. Like, so in my generation, there's about 80% of my people who I went to school with starting out their own businesses. But we're sort of doing this in uh, an uncoordinated fashion. Right. um, So that we're not able to really measure the impact that we are collectively having on reducing unemployment, which is perhaps the greatest problem that our generation faces. Well, one of the things that's spoken quite a bit about here in the United States about around entrepreneurship is is the failure rate uh, Mm -hmm. of those ideas coming forward. Is the failure rate a concern in Nigeria as well with these young entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a global phenomenon. I think it's it's general fact that, you know, one out of five uh, businesses would tend to succeed um, and would probably die before uh, five years of, of startup. Uh, and it's a problem because um, sometimes, especially in an environment where the infrastructure is not really set up to support those businesses, we find businesses dying quite a bit faster. And so that's why the work that we do is so important. And that's why I'm very privileged to be here on fellowship. Yeah. Sort of learn how we can take back some insights and knowledge to try and help businesses grow and sustain their growth. So specifically, where are you going to be headed and who are you going to really want to talk to to kind of get an idea of what you're looking for? Um, I'm lucky to be visiting a lot of accelerators here to sort of study their model, um, see what... Um, facts and knowledge I can take back to our practice in Lagos. Um, I have a sort of like a homecoming in Atlanta with my friends at the CAU where I did my initial fellowship, uh, the uh, Obama uh, fellowship in in 2014. 
So I've got um, a few meetings set up with them to try and improve the education component of our accelerator program with them. And then we head down to Silicon Valley and some of the areas where we can understudy some of the tech, entrepreneur, uh, tech accelerators and see what learnings I can take back to improve my program in Lagos. We are joined uh, here in the studio by Timoteo Itomi, who is the CEO and founder of Redwire, which is a, a marketing group in Lagos, Nigeria, and also based in, in London as well. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I, I think we've, we've learned here in the United States, especially uh, in, in the recent months, how valuable the younger generation can be. Obviously, we've seen how the millennials here in the U.S. have, have kind of really stepped up and taken a large role in how business is going, but also in the mindset of where we want to take this country. Is it similar in Nigeria as well? It absolutely is. And, you know, one of the best things about being born around this time is technology is helping us organize ourselves in ways that weren't possible just five, six, seven years ago. Um, and that is not lost on us in Lagos, Nigeria, where we have access to solutions and technology that is really helping us coordinate our efforts in, you know, in greater uh, proportions. And I think... One of the best things about that is some of the issues where, you know, we have uh, the government not listening to us, we're able to, you know, collaborate amongst ourselves and see how we can create alternative solutions to them. Um, I think if there was any time for any person to be born, it'd be around this time, because just taking from the example of what happened with the young people here in, yeah. the, in the United with States, the which was so profound. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. was, I mean, everywhere around the world, everywhere it was in Lagos, we were totally awed by that. And you see some of the cascading effects on the young people in my country who saw that happening and thinking, yeah. oh, wow, actually, we can also do the same thing on, you know, uh, smaller scales or larger scales. So how much do you, how much can the young people in, in Nigeria get involved in, in trying to influence policy, influence the political process? Because here in the U.S. at times, it feels like it, it is a process that is kind of in lockdown. You have these people that are have been in government for decade upon decade, and there's just no way to kind of break that cycle. It, are, are, are the young people, young adults in Nigeria looking at that the same way? Absolutely. I, I don't think that there is any society that is necessarily isolated in the sense that you, 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 get, the, you get the feeling that the older generation is holding on to power sure. uh, yeah. more than that. So the same thing happens in our country. But the good thing about it is that we're very restless people, uh, young Nigerians, and we're a very tenacious <laughs> bunch as well. Uh, so that sort of reflects in the way that we approach our leaders. Yeah. So we challenge them a lot and then just Recently in my country, a very young uh, gentleman pioneered a bill called the Not Too Young to Run Bill. Um, so for the first time in the mm. history of our country, you have people under the age of 40 being able to run for political office. Wow. Um, and yeah, and then they passed that in the House, I think, about just a few months ago. And just the, the, the movement behind that was tremendous to see. And it wasn't just on social media, because in my country, we have, um, unfortunately, not that many people have access to the Internet and mm -hmm. technology. But then the larger core, the smaller core who have were able to influence discourse amongst the larger core who don't have access to technology. And they passed that bill, which is a tremendous success for my generation. What is the expectation that you want to take from this time here in the U.S.? Um, I think more than anything in the few days that we've been here, it's just been a tremendous exchange of knowledge and of history. Um, and I think uh, the ability to network with global leaders doing tremendous things is such a humbling one for me. And more than anything, I'd like to improve my capacity as a young leader, 
yeah. uh, well, relatively young leader, um, and also take back um, the energy and the passion of the people here to transform uh, their country, take that back to my country, and then put it on steroids and try to change things <laughs> in my country as well. You gotta be careful using that word steroids, though. That can, in a good way. That, that, that's right, because that's yeah, it can get you in okay, trouble. On, on stilts. There you go. All right. Well, it, it is interesting, and, and obviously it gives you a great opportunity to be here and, and take the experience. As you said, you've been here before. But again, take that experience from the United States and, and try and bring it back to Nigeria and, and really make the change that, that you hope or you believe is possible to better the, out, uh, the outcome of Nigeria for the decades to, to come in the future. Absolutely. That's my objective here. And that's why I'm so grateful for um, the Eisenhower Fellowship, which is yeah. just a remarkable program that I'm very privileged to be on. Great meeting you. Thank you Likewise, for coming in. Thank you so thank much you for very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.